we uh, look at our passage this morning. And uh, once again, we're in, we're in Luke chapter 21, and, and, and really the, the passage goes from, uh, from verse 5 all the way to the end of the chapter. And uh, I keep on having these ambitions of how far I'm going to get, but I'm only going to get as far as, as verse 24 today. But I'll, again, I'll read the whole passage. So Luke, Luke chapter 21, uh, verses uh, 5 to 38. Luke 21, verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was ordained, was so adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon the other will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Jesus said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he. The time is at hand. Do not go after them. When you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes in various places, and famines and pestilences. There will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before this, they will, all, they will lay hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you'll be brought before kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to, will be able to withstand or contradict. You'll be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you will be put to death. You'll be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. For when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that its desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and let those who are inside the city depart. And let not those who are out in the country enter it. For these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in sun and moon and stars and on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves, people fainting with fear, with foreboding of what is about to come on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a, great, in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. They told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out and leave, you see for yourselves and know that the summer is already near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will, not, will, not, will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell in the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength 
to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came in the temple, came to him in the temple to hear him. This is the word of our Lord. May he write his eternal truths upon our hearts for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom. Please be seated. And let's pray again together. Our great and glorious God, we praise you. For you are the sovereign ruler over all things. We praise you, Lord, that you are the omniscient God. You declare the end from the beginning and everything in between. Lord, we praise you that all of history is your story and that you are working all things out according to the perfect counsel of your will and that all things will be ended at the time which you have ordained in eternity past. And we praise you, Lord, that according to your providence, you have caused us to be born at this particular time in history and especially to be born again at this particular time in history. We pray that you would help us, Lord, as those who are living before you now. Lord, to have a right perspective, especially of you and of what you are doing in the world and especially what you've done through the gospel. That we might be able to live before you in all times, seeking the glory of your name and the advance of your kingdom. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God's word is no stranger to paradox. God's word teaches truths that appear contradictory to our finite mind, sometimes even in the very same verse. I remember in one of my classes in seminary, the professor was saying that, that every major Christian doctrine is an apparent paradox. I never heard I'd never heard that before, so I, I began to, to study to, to meditate on these things and and I think he was right. Let's just consider a few examples. The Bible teaches that God is sovereign and that human beings are responsible for their actions. Ephesians, sorry, Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work of his good pleasure. So God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. The Bible teaches that every word of God is a work of the Holy Spirit. Yet the Bible also teaches that the Bible is a work of man. Philippians, sorry, second, I'm one behind where my verses here. Second Peter 1, 20 and 21. No prophecy from Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. The Bible also teaches that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. Colossians 2.9 For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And I believe the most apparently paradoxical of them all, the Bible teaches that God is one God in three persons. Matthew 28.19 Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, these are just a few examples, but, but they are all examples of apparent paradox. To our finite minds, they don't make sense. We can't put them together. 
Now, I mean, I, I've spent many hours trying to work through these things in our minds and, and comparing Scripture with Scripture, and, and I hope many of you have as well. And, and I, I know that as you have done that, you've come to the conclusion that some of these things, again, we have to leave them in the, in the realm of apparent paradox, that we, we can't really fully understand how they fit together. But we, we look at God's Word. God's Word teaches both, so we hold on to both. Well, as we consider our study of the Olivet Discourse from Luke 21, Jesus' prophecy of coming events, we're presented with things that appear paradoxical. Now, they aren't paradoxical in quite the same way as the doctrines I just mentioned. But Jesus' teaching here is a puzzle to us. It, 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 it's hard to, as I said to the kids, it's, it's hard to talk about, to understand what he's talking about, the, the imminent future or the more distant future or both. And it's really hard to try to figure these things out. And, and many theologians have, have written many books about these things. But they still come away with questions. So here, after Jesus tells the disciples about the destruction of the temple, they have a question for him. But again, unlike the questions that the Pharisees and the Sadducees flooded Jesus with in Luke chapter 20, again, these men really wanted to understand what Jesus was saying and what he meant. Luke 21, verse 7. Teacher, when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now Matthew records the full question in Matthew 24, 3. Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So here in in Luke 21 and Matthew 24 the, the, and, and Mark 13 as well. The, the synoptic gospels all record this for us. We ask the question, well, in Jesus' ensuing answer here, is he speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem or is he speaking about the end of the age? Again, many solid theologians have, have differing interpretations of Jesus' answer. On the one hand, Jesus appears to be prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem. However, he also appears to be prophesying the end of the age. So which is it? Is Jesus prophesying the destruction of Jerusalem, or is he prophesying the end of the age? Yes. Yes. I believe Jesus is prophesying both. I believe Jesus is not speaking here of, a, of an either-or, but a both-and. And again, this this conflicts with, with our way of thinking as we, we want to be linear. We want to, we want to try to, 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 to wrap our brain around these things. But, but there's some of this that just we have to leave in the realm of mystery. And where Jesus goes back and forth, it, it can be hard to tell. So Jesus here is, is answering two questions. Even though in the minds of the disciples, it was really one question. Because the disciples thought that the the destruction of the temple was the end of the age. Well, we, we spent some time talking about that last week, about just how central the, the temple was to everything about Judaism, and, and not just to the religion, but to their culture. And so with the, with the end of, of the temple, they, they thought it meant the end of everything. But Jesus here answers this as two questions, yet two very questions closely related questions. 
Jesus here, I believe, is prophesying imminent and future events. As, as, Jordan, as George Eldon Land explains, we, I quoted him this quote last year, last week. But the divine judgments in history are, so to speak, rehearsals of the last judgment and the successive incarnations of Antichrist are foreshadowings of, of the last supreme concentration of the rebelliousness of the devil before the end. So he's saying here that, that key events that point to the end are at the end of the age are repeated. So Jesus is, is teaching about the imminent destruction of Jerusalem and his future return. Because the, the destruction of Jerusalem parallels and points to end time events. And so both the the imminent and the future prophecies have implement have implications and applications for disciples at all times. Now you may have a different understanding of these things, and that's okay. We we really shouldn't be be overly dogmatic in our understanding of how these things are come to pass are going to come to pass. Besides, I, as I said to the kids, I think Jesus was teaching here something even more important than a timeline of prophetic events. I don't think Jesus' main goal here was for his first disciples or, or for us to have all of our eschatological ducks in a row. I don't think Jesus intended for us here to formulate a precise schedule for the end times. Rather, I think that Jesus' primary goal was to have us to know how to live before him at any time. I believe Jesus is teaching disciples at all times to stand firm in persecution and destruction. As we'll see next week, Lord willing, to stand tall in redemption. So if you remember from last week after dealing with the disciples' question, I, I talked about imminent and future deception from verse 8, and then imminent and future tribulation from verses 9 to 11. Well, this week I'm going to talk about imminent and future persecution in verses 12 to 19, and imminent and future destruction in verses 20 to 24, and then next week from verses uh, 25 to the end of the chapter, and especially in uh, 25 to 28, and, and then with the, the parable of the, uh, of the tree that... We're going to see imminent and future redemption. As theologian Anthony Hockema says, we must therefore live in constant expectation of and readiness for the Lord's return. The words, he says, the words of the following motto put it well, live as though Christ died yesterday, arose this morning, and is coming again tomorrow. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is teaching disciples in all times to stand firm in persecution and destruction and to stand tall in redemption. So first of all, verses 12 to 19, imminent and future persecution. Here in verse 12, Jesus shifts from prophesying the, the tribulation that would be intensified in the lead up to the destruction of the temple and will be repeated, reaching an un precedented level in the lead up to the end of the age. So he moves on from talking about this tribulation and he now prophesies another trial that will be intensified in the lead up to the destruction of the temple and will reach unprecedented levels in the lead up to the end of the age. He's talking about persecution. Jesus was speaking here directly to his first disciples. 
warning them of imminent persecution. Saying their persecution was imminent, but there are also future implications and applications for all disciples, especially those at the end of the age. Jesus says that, that prior to the destruction of the temple, that disciples will be arrested and brought before synagogues, being questioned for their beliefs. Some would be imprisoned. Some would be dragged before kings and governors because of the name of Christ. This is clearly fulfilled in the book of Acts. We're planning on beginning a study of the book of Acts this summer, Lord willing. But just a few of the examples. Peter and John are brought before the, the Sanhedrin. Peter is brought before King Herod. Paul is also brought before the Sanhedrin and, and before the Roman governors Felix and Festus, as well as King Agrippa, and eventually before Caesar himself. So there's at least an initial fulfillment of the things that Jesus is saying here. And all of this trouble is for the sake of Jesus' name. This is a phrase that is repeated throughout the book of Acts. Just one example, Acts 5.41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. It's all for the name of Jesus. But Jesus tells the disciples that persecution isn't something to fear. Now, I don't know about you, but... but in my natural self, I fear persecution. Yeah, I'm not a masochist. I don't like pain. I don't like trouble. I don't like people being mean to me, let alone people hitting me or torturing me or imprisoning me or, or hurting my family. But Jesus says that these things are not something to be feared. I also fear that, that I'm that I, that I will somehow apostatize, that I will, I will deny Christ in the middle of someone, uh, somebody hurting me or let alone my family. This is a, a natural fear that I have. But Jesus says that persecution is not something to be feared. He says persecution is actually an opportunity. It's an opportunity to bear witness of Christ, of who he is and all that he has done. Jesus instructs his disciples to set their minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. I can imagine that, that under such dire and pivotal circumstances, wanting to have the, the perfect words, right? Especially if you're, you're brought before the, the ruling authorities, you, you want to have the, the perfect words to, to say to, to witness to Christ. And so that's, that, that would be a natural concern on one level, but, but also you want to be worried about not saying something that's going to get you into worse trouble. Again, or far worse, to dishonor Christ. I know that it would be natural for many of us to want to to, to write and to edit what we're going to say and to, and to practice it. But Jesus says to them and to us not to do any of that. Now, this doesn't mean that if you're, you're, you're going to prepare a sermon that you don't prepare beforehand. This is a very different context. But Jesus says that, that if you are being called before authorities to bear testimony, that he will give you a mouth and wisdom 
which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Now we know that this, this does apply directly to those first disciples, but I believe this applies to us as well. Jesus says in, in Luke 12, 11 and, and 12, when they bring you before the synagogues and rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. So again, you, you see this directly fulfilled in the book of Acts, in the testimony of the apostles. Just one example that I love is, is, is when Paul is brought before the Sanhedrin in, in Luke 23. And the Sanhedrin, remember, is a mixed group of, of Sadducees and Pharisees. And when Paul realizes the men who are questioning him are made up of, of Sadducees and Pharisees, he says, I am a Pharisee and a son of a Pharisee. Remember, he was raised in the, in the, in the way of the Pharisees. And he says, I am here on trial because of the hope of the resurrection. Now remember, the Sadducees denied that there's a resurrection. So what Paul is doing there is he's very wisely, he's pitting the, the Pharisees against the Sadducees. And so they start fighting against each other instead of being united in, in attacking him. And it gets so heated that it actually comes to blows. And so what has to happen is the, the Romans then send in the army to rescue him from the, from the, the, the Sanhedrin. Just Again, this is supernatural wisdom. Okay, that, that not, only is he, not only is he using this to, in a sense, get out of trouble. In fact, he gets into a different whole set of circumstances there. But even more than that, to testify of Christ and to draw a link between the hope of the resurrection and Jesus Christ. Does this sound familiar? Remember in, in Luke chapter 20? When the, the Sadducees and the Pharisees kept coming after Jesus with a barrage of questions, and Jesus again and again silenced them. And then here we see Paul, the Apostle Paul, doing the same thing. You might think, well, I could never do that. Well, you haven't been called to do what he called to do at this point. But you have the same Holy Spirit that the Apostle Paul had. And maybe you can think of examples when, when somebody was, was attacking you for your faith. And you, by God's grace, did not react in a fleshly way. I can think of times when I did that too. But think of those times when, when you reacted with, with meekness and humility and just with a, with a word that silenced them. Again, when you do that, that is not you. That is the Holy Spirit in you who enables you to do that. And see, you may be called. Some of us here may be called to even go before authorities to bear witness of Christ. Rely on Him in that time, not on your own strength. This prophecy was fulfilled in the days of the apostles, but it applies to the church in every age. We know from the testimony of history that, that many Christians in the early church were killed. If you visit the, the, the ruins of the Roman Colosseum, right there on the, the, the floor of the Colosseum, on the, on, the, on the grounds, right in the middle, is a cross. And that cross is there as a, as a testimony, as a memorial of all the Christians who were killed by gladiators and, and by wild beasts in the Colosseum. We think in history of, of men like Jan Hus and, and William Tyndale who were killed because they wanted to get the Bible into the, the language that the people would understand. 
or the Marian martyrs, those who were, were killed by Bloody Mary for refusing to take the Roman Catholic Mass, or the Spanish Inquisition. Again, history is full of, of examples of this. And I, I really, I've mentioned this before, but I, I highly, highly recommend you read Fox's Book of Martyrs to, to get a sense of, of the persecution that, that was endured by many of our brothers and sisters throughout history and, and to hear of the way that the, the, the Lord strengthened them to, to face horrific ideal, uh, ordeals. It will help you to, to free from the, the myopia of, of living in 21st century Canada and, and calling the things that we experience today persecution. They aren't. It will help to free you from, from, from thinking that, that things are always going to be how, how they are or that we're always going to be, be free and, and do what we want to do as the church. You know, I, I cannot believe how much things have changed in the 30 years since I came to faith let alone in the, fa in the past five years. Things are changing very quickly. And, and reading a book like this can help you to have a, a perspective and, and a biblical perspective on, on what's taking place around you. It will also help you to prepare your heart for the future and not to hold on too tightly to the things of this world. I warn you in advance, it is not an easy read. There will be many times that, that you will be brought to tears. That you will come away glorifying God for what He has done in, in the lives of His people. Jesus' prophecy here is being fulfilled in many of the lives, uh, the lives of many of our brothers and sisters, even to this day. We're beaten, forcibly removed from their homes, arrested, tortured, and killed for their faith. And we pray regularly for, for the persecuted church, but, but the things that we pray for is just really the, the tip of the iceberg. Again, we could, we could spend all day, every day, praying for, for those who are suffering for Christ. But these things are just an example of, of what our brothers and sisters face in the course of, of their daily lives, let alone of, of trying to gather to go to church on a Sunday. Persecution of the followers of Christ is a natural state in a fallen world. Those who follow Christ will follow in the footsteps of suffering. First uh, Peter 2.21 For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might also follow in his steps. Those who are at peace with the world are at war with those who are at peace with God. And this persecution is going to intensify toward the end of the age and will culminate in the Great Tribulation, Revelation 7.14. But the kind of persecution that, that Jesus is talking about here will not only be perpetrated by authorities, it will even come from loved ones. Parents, siblings, relatives, and friends will actually hand Christians over to the authorities for persecution. And some are even martyred by their own families. We read about it and pray regularly for, for those who, who are killed by their own families in Muslim countries. In so-called honor killings. And many Christians have, have died for their witness of Christ through our history and are, again are suffering and dying today. The word that is, is translated witness is martyrion in Greek. The word that... that that is now commonly understood as martyr. Many who were witnesses for Christ became martyrs for Christ. 
Jesus also spoke about families dividing over him in, in Luke chapter 12, saying, Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, rather division. Verse 51. I've seen families divide over COVID responses. Something that, that seems so big, but is so inconsequential compared to eternal things. How much more will families divide over Christ? Jesus continues, You'll be hated by all for my namesake. People are going to hate you because of Jesus. Maybe you've already experienced that. But in reality, they're hating Christ in you. John 15, 18, 19, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own, because but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. So again, it just makes sense that, that the disciples of Jesus would follow in his steps. Now we do need to be careful here. Because I believe that there are times when, when, when as Christians we can have a tendency to pick a fight. Okay, and to, to, and to try to, to make things, say things are really about Jesus when they're not. And when we can, we can even, at times, even as I've done, talk to people about Jesus in a way that is argumentative and I'm trying to win an argument rather than trying to win the soul. Make sure that, that if, if you are experiencing persecution, that you're not suffering as an evildoer, but it is because of the name of Christ. That you're truly following in the footsteps of Christ in your message and your methodology of sharing the message. And you may die. Some of us here may be martyred because of our faith. If the Lord tarries. And we need to prepare our hearts for that. Realizing that, that our lives are in God's hands. Jesus promises in verse 18, not a hair of your head will perish. Now some would say, well, that doesn't make sense. Jesus is contradicting himself here. He's just said that some are going to die, and then he says, not a hair of your head will perish. Well, of course, Jesus is never contradicting himself. Paul uses the same phrase in, in Acts 27.34, saying that, that not a hair is to perish from any of the passengers in the impending shipwreck. And, and there he meant that all of them would be saved alive. But, but even more than that, saying that God was going to protect them. It's about God's sovereignty. It's about God's sovereignty. No matter what the disciple of Christ faces, he or she is secure. Nothing can happen to you unless the sovereign God allows it. As Leon Moore says here, it seems best to see Jesus as directing their minds to God's strong control and purpose. It is this that determines whether they're going to live or die, not the machinations of their enemies. You know, as we... As we prayed last week, we, we prayed for Wendy. We said it was, was just a safe lying on that operating table as she was lying in her own bed at night. That, that nothing could happen to her unless God 
allowed it. And only the only things that God brings into the lives of believers are for their good and for his glory. The same is true of persecution. That even if you are lying in a jail cell on death row, you're in the hands of the sovereign God. And God may just use your testimony to bring others to faith, to spur others on in the trials that they're facing. Because God is, is not only sovereign, he's also loving and he's wise. And he has shown his great love for you in sending his son to die for your sins. So whether it's, it's persecution or, or whatever it is that, you, that you're facing or, or may face in the future, you need to interpret all of it through the grid of the gospel. And we talked to the, to the kids about, about having a, a telescope and if, if you were to have a, a telescope, right in the, the middle of that telescope should be the cross. You see everything that you're looking at through the cross of Christ so that you understand what God is doing in the world and in your life through what he did through his son. That he crushed his son for your sins. This is his plan in eternity past. That, that if, and understand that if God took something as, as horrific as the death of Christ on the cross, suffering under the torture of, of wicked men and bearing the wrath of Almighty God. If Jesus could, if God could take something like the death of Jesus and use it for good, the greatest good that has ever been accomplished, the redemption of all of God's people, then surely, even in the midst of whatever trials, even if it's persecution on this magnitude, you can understand that through the cross and see that God, who is sovereign and loving and wise, will somehow redeem that for your good and for his glory. As Jesus continues here, saying that that is by your endurance that you'll gain your lives. By your endurance, even to the point of death, you gain eternal life. Now, Jesus is not saying here that, that, it is a, that endurance is a works-based salvation. He's saying that real faith endures. Real faith endures. You know, we, we talk about the, the perseverance of the saints, that the saints will persevere to the end, and that's true. But the saints will persevere to the end because they are preserved. It is the preservation of the saints by Almighty God. God is keeping you strong. God will keep you steadfast even if it comes to something as horrific as we're talking about here. God will keep you strong. And you realize that, that real faith endures false faith falls away false faith does not endure in the parable of the soils back in luke 8 jesus said that the seed that was planted on the rock grew up but it withered away many receive the gospel with joy but they have no root so they believe for a little while but in a time of of testing fall away 
The faith is proved to be false. It was never, they were never believing or trusting God in the first place. But endurance in the face of any obstacle or trial leads to salvation. Saving faith is steadfast faith. True believers will not let go of Christ for anything. When many false disciples left Jesus in Luke chapter 6, those, Jesus asked those who remained, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. John 6, 68 and 69. Like Jim Elliott, the missionary who was martyred by the Huani people in Ecuador in 1956, said, He is no fool who gives up that which he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. True believers hold on to Christ because Christ is holding on to them. But can you imagine the joy of Jim Elliot, who had gone into the jungle to share the gospel with these people, and he, he died at the point of a spear. He closed his eyes in this life and opened his eyes, at least spiritually, in the presence of Christ. He opened his eyes in the presence of Christ. This was his hope, and this is the hope of all who trust in Christ, that we will one day, if he, does, if he tarries, we will close our eyes in this life, and we will open our eyes before him in paradise. And this hope will help you to stand firm, and will help you to endure whatever trials come into your life, the providence of God. So then Jesus was teaching his disciples how to live during persecution. But he's teaching all disciples how to live during persecution, not just the first disciples. The persecution of Jesus' first disciples was imminent, but there's a, there are future implications and application for all disciples, especially those at the end of the age. So now Jesus goes on to talk about imminent and future destruction, verses 20 to 24. So once again, Jesus is here speaking of the imminent fulfillment of prophecy, but I believe he's also prophesying things that still remain for the future. The destruction of Jerusalem would take place within 40 years of, of Jesus speaking these words. The destruction of Jerusalem was imminent, but there are future applications and implications for us. The destruction of Jerusalem will be horrific, or would be horrific, but it wasn't the end. It wasn't the end. Even still, though, both, both events are closely related. The destruction of Jerusalem and the end of the age. The, the, the former, the destruction of Jerusalem, is typological to the latter. It, it points to the, the, the end of the age. It's, it's a picture that points to the things that are going to happen at the end of the age. So Jesus here is, is clearly speaking about the destruction of Jerusalem, but I believe he's, he, Luke is also showing us how Jesus is, is describing the destruction of Jerusalem as a harbinger of what's to come, as a foretaste of final destruction at the end of the age and at the return of Christ. The city is about to be desolated in judgment for rejecting Jesus Christ. But one day the whole earth is going to be destroyed for its rejection 
of Jesus Christ. That is only the believers who will remain. As Jesus spoke these words, Jerusalem was in the hands of the Roman Empire. Roman soldiers were everywhere, especially in Jerusalem, and, and especially now because the Passover was at hand and Pilate had, had brought in a garrison of soldiers in order to keep control of Jerusalem. And 30 years later, in A.D. 66, the Jews would begin to revolt against Rome. And then Rome would send armies. And the rival these armies was to be a sign, a, a warning of coming destruction, of desolation. Now normally, in that time, during a, a foreign invasion, citizens would flee to walled cities for protection. But Jesus warns them to run in the other direction. For those outside Jerusalem are not to come in, and those who are are outside or inside, they should leave Jerusalem, he's saying. So he warns those who are in the, the wider region that of Judea that they should flee for the mountains at this time. First century uh, Jewish historian and Roman sympathizer Josephus wrote that in AD 66, when when General Cestius marched on Jerusalem in response to the rebellion, suddenly withdrew. When doesn't know, don't know why. He suddenly withdrew. A, a large number of the inhabitants of Jerusalem left. They fled, and this included many Christians. This is corroborated by the third century Roman historian Eusebius, who wrote in his Historia Ecclesiastica, but the people of the listen to this, but the people of the church in Jerusalem had been commanded by a revelation vouchsafed to approved men there before the war to leave the city and to dwell in a certain town of Perea called Pella. And when those that believed in Christ had come thither from Jerusalem. So when those that believed in Christ came thither from Jerusalem. So the, his, history actually tells us that this happened, that the disciples of, of Jesus, not just the first disciples, but the, the followers of Christ, heeded the warning. And they, they saw the, the first invasion of, of Cestius and the armies of Cestius on the outskirts of, of Jerusalem, it saw as a warning, we have to get out of here. Jesus warned us that this was going to happen. So three years later, when, when General Titus came back to completely sack and to destroy Jerusalem, there were hardly any Christians there. They'd all gone in response to Jesus' warning. Jesus refers to this, this time as the days of vengeance. The days of vengeance, when, when people were punished for their sins, God was going to judge Jerusalem. Remember in, in Luke 19, verses 43 and 44, as Jesus approached Jerusalem for the triumphal entry, he said of Jerusalem, he, he wept over Jerusalem, saying that the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and will surround you and hem you, hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And you will not leave one stone uh, upon another in you because you do not know the time of your visitation. And so this, this judgment was on the Jews who rejected Jesus. But God spared the vast majority of the Christians by warning them to get out of there before it happened. Remember the people, of, of, the people who were there 
when Jesus was before Pontius Pilate. This is going to happen just a couple of days after Jesus says this. They say, let, let his death be upon us and our children. The Lord sees all and knows all. Every sin must go, unpun- must go punished, either on Christ or on the heads of those who rejected them. So this is divine judgment they, that they had called down on themselves in the rejection of Jesus. It's horrific. And Jesus warns that women who are pregnant and those who are nursing infants are most vulnerable. The great distress will, will come upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive among the nations. Josephus tells us that, that 97,000 were taken prisoner throughout the war. And he says that 1.1 million were killed in the siege. Now, it's very likely that that number is at least somewhat of an exaggeration. But you get a sense of the carnage. It was catastrophic. You know, if you, if you visit Israel, you can, you can go and, and visit the fortress of Masada. And it's, it's on, a, on a hilltop. And the, it was like the, the last stand of, of the Jews. And the Romans built siege mound to the city. And they, they built a, an earthen ramp that, that made it up to the, the walls of Masada. But when they arrived in the city, everybody was dead. They knew that they were about to be killed and taken prisoner by the Romans, so they, they killed themselves. It was horrific. And the remaining Jewish diaspora were, were exiled throughout the known world. The Jews were scattered from their homeland. And they're still subject to, to continuing persecution. Few peoples in the history of humanity have suffered as much as the Jews have suffered. The Holocaust. Just one example of of what has taken place in the lives of the Jews. Six million Jews killed, gassed by Hitler. Jesus says that Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. This is, this is a little bit more of a, of a challenging passage to understand. I believe that there's a, there's a double meaning here. This, this phrase, that the, 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 um, the, the times of the Gentiles, I, I believe refers to the Gentiles, the Romans here, as, as God's agents of, of the prophesied destruction of Jerusalem, like, the, like God calls the Assyrian the rod of his anger. God is using these, these wicked men to bring down judgment on his people. But I believe it also points to a future deliverance for Israel. Because Jesus says here that the times of the Gentiles will be fulfilled. There is there's something else. There's, there's, this time of the Gentiles is not going to last forever. As Paul says in Romans 11.25, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So I see this as a a temporary season to give way to the consummation of God's purpose in eschatological fulfillment. This is a, a temporary time until the time of the fulfillment of all things. Again, Jesus declares that these are days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. And so I think this is this is also has a future implication here as well. 
Luke says that there will be great distress upon the earth. Okay, the word that's translated there, it's actually earth. It means the earth. Matthew and Mark also describe this event in, in terms of the destruction of Jerusalem, but include elements that clearly point to the future and point more broadly to global events. Matthew 24, 21 and 22 records Jesus saying, For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been seen from the beginning of the world until now, no one will never be. That if those days had not been cut short, no human would, being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Mark is, is similar. So here, I believe that Luke has a, a different emphasis. He's focusing on the event that is closer chronologically, the destruction of Jerusalem. But he's going to define it. So he's going to, fo he's going to focus more on Jesus' return. We'll see next week in verses 24 to 28. This here is a reflection of what we read in Daniel 12.1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who is charge of your people. And there should be a time of trouble such as has never been since the, there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered and everyone whose name will be found written in the book. So we can't just disregard this that is, as something that, that has taken place in the past. That there's application here for us as well. And remember what I said about, about past events pointing to future consummation. One example of this, the, um, Luke doesn't, doesn't talk about this, but, but Matthew and Mark speak of the abomination that causes desolation. And so that's, that's written about uh, back in, in Daniel chapter 7 with, with the, the abomination that causes desolation referred in part to, um, to, to Antiochus IV, also known as Antiochus Epiphanes, who, who slaughtered a, a pig on the altar. And so it was, it was called an abomination that, that causes desolation. That was a, a partial fulfillment of the prophecy. Daniel 7. But then in the destruction of the temple in AD 70, we have another abomination that causes desolation when General Titus enters into the temple, into, into the holy place, and takes the, the lampstand and the, the furnishings, the holy furnishings from the temple, and then commands the temple to be destroyed. And there are some theologians that, that believe that this is going to happen again in the future to point to, the, 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 to what's going to take place under the Antichrist. When he's going, to take, when he's going to sit on the throne and declare himself to be God. We read about this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Again, we don't need to be dogmatic about these things, but, but these past events repeat themselves and point to the coming time. But again, the, Jesus' main point here is, is not for us, us to, to develop a, an eschatological timeline, to try to figure out all the way that all these things are going to come together and what they're going to look like. And, you know, like, like I talked about last week, like in a Left Behind novel. The more important thing here is the application that Jesus wants us to know how to live in all times. We can't just disregard the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple is something that, that happened in the past. There's application for us as well. And I have just a few here. First of all, as I said in my sermon on Luke chapter 20, verses 20 to 26, that, that, that in times of, of trial, we don't just head for the hills. I want to nuance this a bit. 
what, what I was trying to say is that we don't just, just run for the hills in order to avoid trials or to avoid persecution. There, there is a time to run and there's a time to stand and fight. You know, it might be different for different individuals and different families under different circumstances. And we see this with the Apostle Paul, don't we? We see the Apostle Paul standing before the Jewish and other authorities. But we also see the Apostle Paul being lowered down in a basket through a window to escape the Jewish authorities. So, so you need to, to, to seek the Lord and to seek his wisdom. If you can trust God to help you to know what to say in times of persecution, you can certainly trust him to give you wisdom in times of destruction. So that's the first application for us. Second, you can see that God is sovereign over history. Right? That God is doing all of this in accordance with his plan. Very clearly, Jesus is, is prophesying with, with great detail what was going to happen at the destruction of Jerusalem. And so we can, we can trust him to also describe for us what is going to happen at the end. And to know that all of it is under God's sovereign control. Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. So because God is sovereign over history, you don't need to be anxious about tomorrow. Right? Today has enough troubles of its own. You don't need to fret the future. You can trust that no matter how difficult things get, God is omniscient and God is omnipotent. He sees what you're going through. He sees what you are going to go through. He saw it all in eternity past. He's also sovereign over your future. In God's providence, he will empower you and protect you as you seek to stand firm until the time that is decreed that it will be your end in this life. You are invincible until the Lord has decreed to take you home. As I said a few moments ago, nothing can happen to you apart from God's sovereign, sovereign will. Third, and finally, Jesus writes these things to show that if he's calling you to face trials, to know that he will be with you in these trials. Now you will face trials, maybe not to the extent, and hopefully not to the extent of those that are described here. But the reality is that, that your worst trials have been avoided. Right? The, the, the trial that was that, that we all deserve is eternity in hell. And even the horrors of the destruction of Jerusalem are nothing compared to one second in hell. But hell is what you and I deserve. Even in our best moments, Hell is what we deserve. Because even our righteousness 
is filthy rags before a holy God. We deserve God's wrath poured out upon our heads for all eternity. But Jesus Christ bore that wrath for you and for me. Your sin has been paid for by Christ. No matter what you face, it's better than what you deserve. But the vast majority of those killed in the destruction of Jerusalem died not as belonging to Christ, but as separate from Christ, as the enemies of God. They left this life and entered into a far, far worse eternity. So again, interpret what you face or what you may face in light of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, God is faithful all the time. He shows his faithfulness to you through the gospel. You do not need to fear anything. You do not need to fear anything at all. Anything that comes. Because God loves you and sent his son to die for your sins. If he would go to such great lengths to save you, then surely you could trust him in persecution and destruction and anything else that comes your way. God is faithful to you all the time and he calls you to be faithful at all times. But God will not leave you to stand alone. He will carry you through whatever trials you will face in this life. He will not necessarily deliver you from the trials, but he will deliver you through the trials. You can trust him to help you face any persecution and any destruction, any trial, any tribulation, because he is in you through the Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit indwells you. He's guiding you into his truth. Because through his son, he took care of your greatest problem. Every other problem, as difficult as it might be, pales in comparison. May we have this kind of perspective. May we preach these truths to ourselves as we walk through this life. So that when that time comes, whatever comes, we have been prepared, we have been trained to stand steadfast. We've been warned about what's coming. And we've been warned to stand firm in Christ. And to rely on Him, the strength we provide. Let's pray together. Our great and glorious God. Lord, we live in a fallen world. We face many difficulties. We face many difficulties that are even the result of our own sin. But Lord, you have faced imminently, infinitely greater difficulties so that we could have life, so that we would not die in the judgment that we deserve, but so that we could be redeemed, we could be delivered from death into eternal life. Help us, I pray, Heavenly Father, 
to preach the gospel to ourselves daily. To remind ourselves of your great love for us in Christ. To interpret everything that we face and everything that we might face through the cross of Christ. So that we might grow in our faithfulness to you as we remember your faithfulness in all things. We pray this in the majestic name of Christ, the only Savior. Amen.